Good morning, church. So last week we wrapped up our study through the, the church and what it is and what God calls us to be as a church. And today we're going to be back in our study through the book of Luke. We're going to spend the next three weeks wrapping up our time going through Luke. Um, and, you know, I've, I realized I've had a couple people comment to me already that it feels weird to be wrapping up Luke during this time of year. It feels like right now we should be talking about Christmas the next few weeks, not, not wrapping up Luke, not talking about the cross. But I think, actually, the end of Luke is a fantastic place for us to be as we get ready for the Christmas season. And why is that? Well, because the end of Luke is Jesus' journey to the cross. The only reason Jesus' birth is worth celebrating is because of what Jesus did on the cross. Of course, Christmas is amazing. It's the day God became human. He became one of us. But the way that we know that, that Jesus was really God, that he really was who he said he is, that, that God became one of us is because of what happened on the cross, because Jesus died for our sins and then rose from the dead. Christmas without Easter is just another day that another baby was born. Easter is what makes Christmas worth celebrating. So the next few weeks, we're going to wrap up our study of Luke as we move towards Christmas. And then in the new year, we're going to start with something new. And the next few weeks, our study through Luke, it all centers around the cross. So today, we're going to see the journey from the end of the Last Supper to Jesus receiving his official death sentence. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 22, verse 39 through 23 verse 25. That's Luke 22 verse 39 until Luke 23 verse 25. And what we're going to see today is that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's actually from 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So we're going to see four proud characters or groups of people the Jewish leaders, Pilate, Herod, and the disciples. And then we're going to contrast that with the humility of Jesus. But before we jump in and start doing that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word, for our chance to study your word and learn from it even during these crazy times. I pray that you would guide us today, help us to see what you're trying to say to us in this passage. Speak to us and transform us to be people who are more like you. Amen. So, we've got four proud characters, like I said. As we, as we look at today's passage, what we see is it's just a series of scenes, one after another. It almost feels like a movie, just scenes, back to back to back, each one driving the plot a little further along. And in almost every scene, Jesus is at the center of the action. But as he moves from location to location, he's interacting with different people in each of these scenes. So today we're going to zoom in and we're going to look at four of these characters or, or groups of people. And what we're going to see as we look at them is that all of them think that they have the wisdom or the strength within themselves to handle Jesus properly or to respond to Jesus properly. They think they've got him figured out. They assume they know what his presence in their lives calls for. And because of this, they come to him with pride in their hearts. And what we're going to see is that none of them actually have what's needed to respond to Jesus properly. And so when they come face to face with the reality of who Jesus is, none of them respond properly to him, at least not at this point in the story. 
every one of these four characters or groups, they assume they're strong, but their attempts to show their strength actually fall short and show them to be truly weak in the end. They start out proud, but God opposes them because of it. Like Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud. So we're going to go through these four individuals or groups one at a time, and we're going to see how this process plays out in their specific circumstances in this passage and what we can learn today from their experiences. So we'll see how each of them sees Jesus, how they respond to him based on how they see him, what are the results of that interaction, and then what does it look like for us to have a similar approach to Jesus today? And we're going to start with the Jewish leaders. So to the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus was an obstacle to be destroyed. Jesus was an obstacle to be destroyed. Now, as we've gone through our study of Luke, the Jewish religious leaders, they've come up again and again in this story. We've talked about them a bunch throughout our study in Luke. Ancient Israel, it was a society dedicated to worshiping God as as correctly and purely as possible. And these guys, these religious leaders, they were the ones whose job was to study God's word and teach everyone else the proper way to worship God. They did everything according to the letter of the law. They were careful to never do anything that violated God's commands, at least as far as they understood those commands. And because of this, they were respected in society and had really high standing in the world of their day. And then Jesus came along. And Jesus, in the book of Luke, has lots of interactions with the Jewish religious leaders. Most of the time, that we see them, the religious leaders are either upset about something Jesus is doing or they're getting into arguments with him. It's, it's rarely a positive and good interaction when those guys are on the scene. And this is because Jesus is teaching a new way of following God and he's reinterpreting their old traditions. This, he's threatening their social order. Sometimes he'll even go so far as to say these guys are sinning. These guys are failing to follow God properly. And for people who are convinced that they are right, that they cannot be wrong in their understanding of the Bible, that that they are obeying God perfectly, this is threatening. Jesus refuses to align with them. He's causing issues for their social status, and therefore the Jewish religious leaders feel the need to get rid of him. So what do they do? They gather a group of people together in the middle of the night, go out and arrest Jesus. And then they bring him to the Roman officials because the Jewish religious leaders didn't have the right to give the death penalty, but the Romans did. So they bring him to the Roman officials so that they can sentence Jesus to death. And throughout the process of Jesus' trial, these Jewish religious leaders who are so passionate about obeying God and doing the right thing, they repeatedly ignore due process of the law. They ignore rule of law in order to get their way. I mean, they stir up an angry mob to call for Jesus' death in chapter 23, verses 13 to 23. It's one of the great ironies of their story, but actually their their passion for purity and obedience to God's law leads them to commit blasphemy and murder. They pridefully assume that they are right and Jesus is wrong. And because of this, they end up being the primary human party that's responsible for the death of Jesus. Their pride their assumption that they must be right actually puts them in a place where they 
oppose God and therefore God opposes them. It doesn't end well for them. So what does it look like in our world to have this type of approach to Jesus? Well, one way this attitude can come up is when people want to be into spirituality or religion as long as they get to define what it means. But they refuse to accept Jesus because he's too narrow or too close-minded. You know, we live in a world where lots of people, they want to be spiritual, they want to be religious, but they want the freedom to define for themselves what spirituality and religion. Like the Pharisees in this passage, or the religious leaders in this passage, these people want to define for themselves what proper religion looks like, and they don't want someone else, like Jesus, telling them they're wrong. And yet when we look at Jesus, he repeatedly insists that if we're going to come to him, we have to come on his terms. And because of this, many people who would call themselves spiritual or religious in today's world want absolutely nothing to do with Jesus, just like the religious leaders in this story. They'll fight against him, they'll fight against his teaching because it gets in the way of their spirituality. And just like for the Jewish religious leaders in today's passage, this is a proud approach to Jesus that puts us in a place, if, if we take this approach, it puts us in a place where God... So that's the Jewish religious leaders. Next up, we see a proud response to Jesus in Pilate. Pilate sees Jesus as a problem to be dealt with. Pilate sees Jesus as a problem to be dealt with. See, Pilate, he's a Roman politician. He's dragged into this story pretty much against his will because an angry Jewish mob shows up at his door asking him to condemn this man to death. And throughout the story, you get the sense Pilate wants to do the right thing. He wants to pursue justice. And yet, more than that, he just wants the problem to go away. He doesn't want to harm an innocent man, but he also doesn't want the hassle of dealing with this mob. So he does all that he can to not be responsible for Jesus. So, at the start of chapter 23, they bring Jesus to him. In verse 4, he goes out and he tells them, I find no guilt in this man. He wants to just release Jesus and be done with the problem, but when the Jews are still upset with him, he realizes he can't just release Jesus or he's going to still have this problem. So he wants to pass off the problem to someone else. He finds out that Jesus actually falls under the jurisdiction of another Roman ruler, a guy named Herod, and so he tries sending Jesus to Herod so that it's not his problem anymore. And then Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. And three more times, Pilate tries to get the Jewish leaders to drop the issue and let Jesus go. And, and all along, you can see, he's fighting for justice, he's trying to do the right thing, but his top motivation, it's not a pursuit of justice. He had the power to let Jesus go and chose not to use it. His main motivation is to get rid of the problem, to get rid of the angry mob on his front porch. Notice in chapters chapter 23, verses 16 and verse 22, he, he offers to punish and release Jesus. Now he said himself, Jesus is innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. To punish an innocent man, that's a clear violation of justice. Pilate, he's, he's willing to punish an innocent man, violate justice by doing that just to appease the crowds. Because it, it's a compromise, right? It saves him from killing an innocent man and it keeps the crowds happy. And what he quickly discovers is the problem that Jesus brings is far too big of a problem for Pilate to handle in his own strength. Pilate is happy to engage with it, 
happy to try to help Jesus as long as it doesn't cost him too much. But once the stakes of actually helping Jesus become clear, Pilate willingly turns from Jesus and gives him over to be murdered by an angry mob. That's what we see in chapter 23, verses 24 and 25. He decided that their demand should be granted. He released a man who was a murderer and delivered Jesus over to their will. Because Pilate approached Jesus from a place of pride, he ended up violating justice and playing a key role in the murder of an innocent man. So what does it look like to respond to Jesus like Pilate in today's world? Well, we respond like Pilate when we're excited to follow Jesus as long as we don't face opposition for our faith. But we turn from him when it's going to cost us. You know, there are lots of people who are happy to come to church and call themselves Christians and, and follow Jesus as long as it doesn't cost them anything. But then one day, they realize, if I really want to be committed to Jesus, it's going to cost me and I am not interested in that. Maybe it's going to be an opportunity to make money in a business deal. And, and they realize, if I want to get this deal done that's going to make me lots of money, I need to lie. And Jesus tells me not to lie. And I would rather have this money than follow him. Maybe it's a romantic relationship and, and they find this person that they're really excited to, to date and be in a relationship with and then they realize this person is going to expect me to cross certain boundaries before we're married that, that Jesus says not to cross. If I want to follow Jesus, I can't be in this relationship. And they turn from Jesus for the sake of having that relationship. Maybe it will cost them in other ways, regardless of what exactly it's going to cost them. People who approach Jesus like Pilate, when they realize true commitment to Jesus is going to be costly to them, they decide that it's better to leave Jesus behind in order to avoid the cost. And just like Pilate, when we prioritize our own comfort or advancement over our commitment to Jesus, we set ourselves against God and put ourselves in a position to be torn down from our pride. So we've looked at the Jewish religious leaders, we've looked at Pilate, next up is Herod. The third character we're going to look at <clears throat> is Herod. Herod was basically, Pilate was the Roman ruler in southern Israel. Herod was the Roman ruler in northern Israel. And Jesus, he's in southern Israel right now, but most of his ministry took place in northern Israel, where Herod is in charge. And Luke actually told us in Luke 9, verse 9, Herod wanted to see Jesus. He's heard about him. He's heard about his teaching and his miracles. He's been wanting to see the amazing things that Jesus does for a long time. And then, because of that, when, when Jesus is sent to Herod in today's passage, Luke tells us in chapter 23, verse 8, that Herod was very glad to see Jesus. He'd been wanting to see him for a long time, and so he's excited that this man is finally coming to meet him. But notice... <clears throat> Herod isn't glad because he believes Jesus is God. He's not excited because he wants to worship and serve Jesus and listen to what Jesus has to say. He's glad because he sees Jesus as a cool novelty. Jesus is like a new toy that he's excited to play with. And Jesus refuses to perform tricks for him. And when Jesus does this, Herod responds like a little child who's just been given a new toy that won't work properly. He throws a tantrum. And so we see in verse 11 of today's passage that Herod treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. In a matter of three verses, Herod goes from excitement towards Jesus to contempt towards Jesus. And this is the direct result 
of his pride. He refused to come to Jesus on Jesus' terms and instead insisted that Jesus fit into the expectations that Herod has for him. And just like Pilate, Herod's wrong approach to Jesus leads to Herod playing a key role in sending an innocent man to his death. So what does it look like for someone to approach Jesus in today's world like Herod approached him in today's passage? Well, I think this happens when people are interested in Jesus if he's going to do powerful and miraculous things for them, but they lose interest, maybe even start to oppose him if he refuses to do that. They expect Jesus to be a cosmic genie or a cosmic vending machine. Your wish is my command. And if Jesus won't do this for them, they have no interest in. I've known many people over the years who, who have said, you know, I'll trust in Jesus if he'll do this for me. But that's not how Jesus works. That's approaching Jesus proudly on our terms, insisting him to do what we expect, just like Herod. And yes, Jesus is powerful. Yes, Jesus does miracles, but he's not just a genie or a vending machine existing to grant your every wish. If your willingness to follow Jesus depends on whether or not he gives you all your wishes or keeps you entertained through his miracles, you're approaching Jesus from a place of pride just like Herod, and that's a dangerous place. So we've looked at the Jewish religious leaders, Pilate, Herod, and then fourth, we're gonna look at the disciples, especially as shown in Peter. To the disciples, Jesus was a leader to die for, but only as long as he led the way that they expected him to. He was a leader to die for, but only as long as he led the way that they expected him to. If you were here a few weeks ago, Les shared about the Last Supper, the last meal Jesus had with his 12 closest followers before dying. And at that meal, Jesus told Peter in Luke 22, verses 31 to 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus says, you're going to be tempted. You're going to fail. But afterwards, turn back. And Peter, he proudly responds, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He's ready to die for Jesus. And at the start of today's passage, Peter shows that this is absolutely true. The crowds come to arrest Jesus. And in verse 49, the disciples say, Lord, should we strike with the sword? They're, they're armed. They're carrying weapons. And before Jesus even answers, in verse 50, one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. In the Gospel of John, John tells us that it was actually Peter who cut off the man's ear. Peter shows through his actions he is willing to fight, to go to prison, even to die for the sake of following Jesus. But then something totally unexpected happens. Verse 51, Jesus said, no more of this. And then he touches the ear that Peter just chopped off and heals it. Jesus, this, this man that Peter is willing to fight and to die for, tells Peter to stop fighting and then lets himself be arrested and taken away. And Peter's world begins to crumble. Peter was intensely loyal to Jesus. He was ready to die for him. And yet, just a few verses later, Peter, he's in the courtyard of the house where Jesus is being held, and he lies three times telling various people, including a servant girl, who was a nobody in their society, that he had never met Jesus before in his life. 
Peter, the same man who proudly declared at dinner that he would never turn from Jesus. He would die for Jesus. Peter, the man who demonstrated that commitment by cutting off a man's ear as Jesus was being arrested, he's now too ashamed to admit that he's ever even met Jesus. How does such a drastic shift happen so quickly? Well, Peter himself tells us in 1 Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud. Peter proudly assumed that he knew what it took to follow Jesus, and he had it. He put his commitment to Jesus into action by cutting off the man's ear. But as soon as Jesus went off script, off the script that Peter expected him to follow, Peter was lost. Peter had assumed that this Jesus movement was a path to power, and he was going to ride this wave to the top or die trying. But when Jesus told him to put away the sword, he all of a sudden realized that following Jesus is not a path to power. It's a path to suffering, and he doesn't want any part in suffering without a fight. Now, if you know anything about the rest of the New Testament, you know that later on, Peter is powerfully transformed. He does incredible work in the early church, spreading the good news of Jesus, but that's only after this scene. It's only after his pride is crushed. On this night, his pride leads to great failure. And so what does it look like for us to approach Jesus like Peter? in our world today. And I think this is, is the people who are committed to Jesus, committed to following him, committed to God's plans for their lives, as long as things keep going the way they expect him to, but who turn from him when he refuses to keep doing what they expect him to do. These people, they're committed to Jesus and to God's plan for their lives as long as things keep going the way they expect them to, but they will turn from him and refuse to keep doing and refuse to keep following him if he refuses to keep doing what they expect him to do. So unlike the pilots of the world, these people are happy to make sacrifices for Jesus. Unlike the Herods of the world, these people aren't insisting that Jesus perform cool tricks to keep them entertained, but these people can often tend to see their faith as more of a transaction. I'll give certain things to Jesus for following him. I'll go to church, I'll read my Bible, I'll pray, I'll stay faithful to my spouse, I'll give money away generously to, to God's work around the world, but they believe if I do these things, God needs to do certain things back for me instead. Maybe he doesn't owe me comfort, maybe he doesn't owe me miracles, maybe it's something more like a clear sense of his calling in my life. Maybe it's something like being able to see that what I'm doing is making a difference. And as long as he'll give me these things, I will stay committed to him. But if he refuses to give them to me, I'm out, I'm done, it's over. And again, this is a proud perspective to take in following and approaching Jesus. And it's especially dangerous because on one level, it actually looks far more humble than these other wrong approaches we've looked at today. Because in this approach, you could be willing to submit to Jesus, to make sacrifices for Jesus, to suffer for Jesus, but the appearance of humility doesn't rescue you from falling away. And it actually makes your fall that much worse when it does happen. I mean, think about how each of these people respond once they've failed. The Jewish religious leaders, they're excited to be murdering Jesus. They're excited that they get to kill him. Pilate and Herod don't seem too bothered by the situation. But how does Peter respond when he realizes what he's done? Look at chapter 22, verse 62. When Peter realizes what he done, he's done, he went out and wept bitterly. 
Peter's pride, his confidence in his commitment level to Jesus, they actually make his fall so much more painful when it happens. And so I, I encourage you, examine your heart, see whether you yourself are approaching Jesus in this way. And if so, repent, turn from it. Be willing to submit to Jesus on his terms, not on yours. So that's four wrong ways to approach Jesus. Four proud approaches that leave God opposed to us and that lead to terrible results. And you may be wondering at this point, is there another way? And of course, there is. And we find that way with Jesus. So let's look at the humility of Jesus. See, just as the other four examples show that God opposes the proud, Jesus shows us that God shows grace to the humble. It's one of the great ironies of the story because the whole way through, Jesus looks like the weakest one in every single scene. But when you look closer, you see that Jesus is actually the strongest one throughout the whole narrative, and his strength comes from his humility. It's actually a running theme in today's passage that things are not what they appear to be. Look at the, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. Judas comes in and he greets Jesus with a kiss. A kiss is a sign of friendship. Someone watching this scene without knowing any of the context would think, oh, they're friends. They're just greeting each other and saying hi. But of course, this kiss was not what it appeared to be. It's a kiss of betrayal. Things are not what they appear to be. Fast forward to verse 69. Jesus is on trial before the Jewish religious leaders. He appears utterly weak and powerless. And then he tells them, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. No one watching that scene would believe that what Jesus said right there was true because it looks absolutely the opposite from what's happening right now. But nothing is what it appears to be. In chapter 23, verse 11, Herod wants to mock Jesus. He puts him in these beautiful, bright, expensive, splendid clothes and sends him back to Pilate. It's intended as a joke, a way of poking fun at Jesus. Someone watching this scene would laugh at how ridiculous it was that they were poking fun at Jesus this way. And yet, nothing is what it appears to be. The reality is, Jesus is more worthy of this splendid clothing than anyone else in the story. Nothing is what it appears to be all throughout this passage. And it's true of the humility of Jesus as well. Throughout the story, Jesus appears to be the weakest one, but again and again, his seeming weakness turns out to be strength. Because in his humility, God is fighting for him. Because Jesus was willing to humble himself and submit to the Father's will for him, God supported and strengthened Jesus with the power he needed to follow the path that God had for him. And we can go scene by scene to see how this plays out. We're not going to look at every single instance of this, but let's just look at a couple quickly. So look at chapter 22, verse 39. First verse of today's passage. Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Now you may be thinking, how does that show the humility of Jesus? Well, here's how. In verse 21, earlier, Jesus tells the disciples at dinner, one of you is going to betray me, and he's at the table right now. Now, Luke doesn't include this detail, but the other gospel writers tell us Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, and Judas actually left the meal early to go meet up with the crowd that was going to arrest Jesus. Judas, as one of Jesus' inner 12 disciples, he knew Jesus' routines inside and out. He had lived side by side with Jesus for the past three years. He knew exactly what Jesus did. Jesus knew Judas was coming with a crowd to arrest him. 
if he wanted to avoid arrest, all he had to do was change his routine that night. Judas was taking the crowd to the place where he knew he would find Jesus after dinner. If Jesus didn't want to get arrested, he just didn't go there that night. And then Judas can't find him. There's no arrest, no trial, no beatings, no cross. By sticking to his routine and going to the Mount of Olives, Jesus shows his humility. Okay, next. Fast forward to verse 42. Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Notice first the humility that, shows Je that Jesus shows right here by being honest about his desires. Like how often in life do we want something, but we're afraid that if we say out loud what we really want, it's going to make us look bad, so we just keep it inside? And when we do that, what's keeping us from actually speaking out? It's pride. We don't want to look bad. But Jesus, he's willing to express his desires directly to his Father. He doesn't care if it looks bad or selfish. He's being completely honest with God, which is a great act of humility. He's bringing his true self to God, not trying to hide anything. And then he follows that up with another act of humility by submitting his desires to God's desires. He says, this is exactly what I want. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is completely honest about his desires, but completely submissive to his father's will. And notice how God responds to his prayer. You know, everyone else we looked at in this passage, they start out proud and they end up humbled by God. But Jesus starts out humble and then look at verse 43. What does God do for him? There appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Because Jesus humbled himself, God strengthened him. And we could go on and talk about other places Jesus shows humility in the story, like telling the disciples to stop fighting as he's being arrested, healing the ear of the man who was arresting him, keeping silent throughout his trials, all throughout this story. Jesus, he appears to be the weakest one, but because he has humbled himself, God strengthens him and God fights for him. And as we're going to see in a few weeks, he, he humbles himself all the way to death, and yet God still fights for him and raises him up in the ultimate victory. Because Jesus humbles himself, God fights for him. He looks weak, but he's truly strong. He looks like a victim of circumstances, but Jesus is completely in control throughout the entire series of events. And if we're Christians, this humble lifestyle is actually the lifestyle that Jesus calls us to live as well. Again and again, the Bible calls Christians to follow the pattern of Jesus by humbling ourselves so that God can exalt us. Like we said, this whole passage could almost be seen as an extended illustration of the truth of 1 Peter 5.5. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that's a truth that's really easy to read, it's really easy to say, and it's so hard to live. Because humility is uncomfortable, right? Our culture, it's all about saving face. Humility means losing face, and nobody wants that. So we fight and we do all we can to preserve our status in the eyes of the people around us. And why do we do that? Because we don't believe this verse is true. We don't believe that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Think about it. Every time you lie to, be, to save face, you're effectively saying, God, I don't believe that you're going to fight for me if I humble myself. 
every time we put other people down so we can feel better about ourselves, we're, we're saying, God, I don't believe that you're telling the truth when you say you oppose the proud but give grace to the humble. And you know the hardest part about living humbly instead of pridefully? We can't just pull up the willpower to change ourselves. The desire to pursue pride and avoid humility at all costs is just hardwired into us because of our sinful natures. Our prideful tendencies come out unexpectedly over and over and over again in life. But what would our lives look like if we actually started to live like this verse is true? We'd be the most loving community anyone around us had ever seen. We'd be willing to sacrifice for one another because that puts us in a place where God can provide for us. We'd be more aware of one another because instead of being distracted and worried about our stress and anxiety, we'd, we'd have the attention to be able to focus on others and really see them. We'd be far more willing to share our faith with a non-Christian friends because we know that God loves us so we don't need their approval to feel good about ourselves. When we really work it into our hearts that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, that's going to shape us into such a loving and caring. So how do we get there? Well, two steps I'll give you today. One, learn to see your pride and repent of it. Think about Alcoholics Anonymous. The first step to dealing with your problem is admitting that you have a problem. We're never going to learn to turn from our pride if we can't admit that it's inside us and see where it lives there. And then once we see it, we repent, we turn from it. And then step two is learn to look at Jesus. So we turn away from our pride and to Jesus. There's nothing more powerful for killing our pride and putting humility in our hearts than seeing the price that Jesus paid because of our pride. The cross is God's ultimate statement of how horrible our sin is. The cross says that our sin, including our pride, is so horrific in God's eyes that the only way to be made right in the eyes of God is the brutal, bloody death of his son. Once you realize that's the case, there's no more room for pride in your heart. The cross is the ultimate statement that you're far more sinful than you ever dared imagine, so there's no room for pride, and yet you're far more loved than you could ever dare hope. So you don't need to turn to despair, you can turn to humility instead. Today's passage shows us that there are two ways to approach life and to respond to Jesus. We can come with pride, fighting for ourselves, insisting on our own way. And when we do this, we set ourselves up in opposition to God. Or we can lay down our desires, come to God humbly, and submit to Him. It's not an easy path, it's going to cost us, but it's the path to God's blessing. And it's how we're set free to be people who truly love God and love one another just like God calls us to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the humility he showed admitting himself to your will and going to the cross. Forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for believing that we know best to live humbly. Amen.